You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, guys. Hey, Evan. Welcome back. Hey, I feel like I forgot to say, I usually try to say where we're from. I'm from the Atavist, and you're from Longform. Yeah, you're good about doing that. There we go. Who'd you talk to this week, Aaron? This week, uh, Nicholas Schmidl from The New Yorker, author of some of my favorite stories for the last few years, uh, all-around intrepid reporter. Um, pretty good moment. We've, we're in our new space here, um, which is beautiful, um, but we have not uh, lit it yet, so there's like a lone naked light bulb hanging up there uh, directly over where the person being interviewed sits. And in the middle of the interview, when I was asking him about uh, his sources for the Bin Laden piece he did, there was this like sweat pouring down his face. And I thought I really like, I really had like shaken him up. He almost then, gave up his sources. Yeah. At the very end of the interview, he's like, yeah, it's nice in here. It's, it's really hot. Very, very hot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a great interview. Um, I really appreciate it. He came in on short notice. And if you need to send an email newsletter on short notice, you should check out the good people at MailChimp's Tiny Letter. Simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter. Take it away from myself <laughs> to the place. Welcome, Nicholas Schmidl. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Sort of the first thing I wanted to talk about was uh, you have a, a story this month in New Yorker called uh, In the Crosshairs, which is um, about is really the story of two two soldiers, one of whom uh, a very decorated sniper and um, the other soldier who ended up killing him. Uh, what were the soldiers' names? Uh, Eddie Ray Routh and Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle is the SEAL sniper. And Chris Kyle is obviously a um, was a was a very well known figure who had written this hit book and and was sort of um, pushed into pop culture as a um, sort of a super sniper. Um, and this story was very widely reported as a, a news event when it happened. At what point did you decide you were going to do this story? So I. Uh the night of the murders, I, I was with my wife, one of my wife's friends' uh, engagement parties, and I remember seeing the news come through and thinking, um, you know, that's probably a big story, but it also felt like the kind of story that every single men's magazine was going to be all over. Yes. And I thought, you know, this isn't some A, I just don't, it is, there is potentially a great story there, but um, I don't know how you could do it this quick, and I don't know how... Uh, I don't want to be the one that's knocking on Chris Kyle's wife's door four days after the murder and saying, you know, will you talk to me? So, um, so that was on Saturday night, sort of Sunday. And of course on uh, Monday or Tuesday, uh, my editor at the magazine, Daniel Zaleski uh, said that David Remnick was interested in the story and wanted to know if I would take a crack at it. <laughs> so I, I thought, all right, well, let me, l l let me think about it for a couple of days. And, and actually uh, that following Monday was Chris Kyle's memorial service. And so I, wanted to go to Texas and get a sense of just, just to see the memorial service and potentially knock on a few doors and see if there was anything there. Um, and I went down there and actually for the first month and a half that I was reporting the story, uh, maybe even two months in, I was just drawing blanks and I had nothing. I had no one on the record. I mean, I had a couple of um, people who Chris Kyle had mentored on the record, but I really had nothing from Eddie's side. Um, I mean, so I made four trips to Texas um, 
And I think it was on the second trip that I, that I was coming up with nothing. And I called my editor and just sort of was telling him by way of looking for an out, looking for him to say, okay, well, what was that other story you wanted to do? Go right. ahead and do that. And as I was telling him all this stuff that I was finding out about Chris Kyle, some of the stories of which appear in the magazine, um, the story about the gas station incident, the story about Hurricane Katrina, these unconfirmable, sensational stories, everyone at the magazine was very excited and said, you know, kind of, you're on the right path. Keep pushing, keep pushing. Because, because you saw that those stories were potentially bunk. Yeah, because they seemed... Yeah. For people who haven't read the story, uh, there was stories that were circulating pretty widely that um, uh, he had claimed to have, dis- have disarmed and killed two people who were who were robbing him of his truck and had uh, killed rioters during Hurricane Katrina from the dome dome of the Superdome yeah. on the top. Yeah. Um, and while you were chasing these stories about Chris Kyle, were you simultaneously chasing the Ralph yeah. story? I was. So I. Um yeah, I, I made sort of a full court press on the routes from day one. I uh, was sending them letters via FedEx, both both the the mother and, and the husband, and as well as Eddie's sister. Um, and uh, Eddie's sister got back to me right away and told me that she she had a long list of media organizations that had already contacted her, and that she put my name on the list, and that uh, when the time came, she might call. So I thought, oh man, so how am I going to be able to separate myself? So I, uh, when I was down in Texas, I, I dropped off some flowers at her house and just, you know, with a small note and with a, with a, um, a one of the back issues that uh, included the Bin Laden story that I wrote for the magazine a couple of years ago. And there was a note that just said, you know, I know you're going through a lot um, and uh, maybe this will brighten your day or something. And when I reached out a couple of days later, you know, she came back. She, you know, they they didn't know how to deal with they didn't have any sort of media training. They weren't, you know, prepared for this. And she came back and said, you know, I don't know what I think about people leaving gestures like, I don't know if I appreciate gestures like that. Oof. So I thought, <laughs> all right, well, that's not, <laughs> I'm setting myself, I'm, I'm setting myself apart from the crowd, but not in a good way. Um, and then I just continued to knock on doors of people that were friends and, and colleagues of, of the mother in particular. Um, I knocked on one door of the mother's best friend and Eddie's godmother, and uh, she came to the door and told me that she, you know, the minute I introduced myself, she shut the door in my face. So I got back in the car, and, and her boyfriend, husband, you know, male partner was behind her, kind of growling and scowling the whole time. And I left the house, and I drove around for a little while, and I thought, okay, I need to go back with like a five-second pitch knowing that the door is going to get shut in my face again, but sort of leverage the fact that I had actually already talked to Eddie and that I was trying to do this very, you know, I, I really just wanted to understand a little bit more about Eddie's background. And I went back the second time. I knocked. Same, same number of cars were in the parking lot. I knocked. Uh, no one came to the door. I thought, all right, well, they're in here. They clearly just don't want to open the door. Knocked again. And she didn't open the door this time, but the, the husband did. And he started, he said, if you don't get off my property right now, I'm going to whip your ass. He started coming <laughs> towards me. And I thought, all right, no, I, I'm, I feel like I'm exhausting all possible options. Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, so I was doing this simultaneous to, um, to reporting out kind of the Chris Kyle side of things as well. Yeah, which I imagine that um, as sort of a war hero, people were more interested in sort of preserving his legacy and talking about him. Routh is at least before the story, sort of the villain of the story, the, the story ends up, I would say, being pretty empathetic towards both parties and, and, and framing it as something of a tragedy. But um, you said you had talked to Routh. He was willing to talk to you from prison? So he, he called, I, I say again, send him a note and sort of, I don't know what the FedEx, uh, I don't know what the FedEx account looks like for this for the past few months, but I was <laughs> sending Eddie a, 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 a lot of notes. Every few days I would send him a note. Um, and he reached back to me about a week a few days after the funeral, essentially, he probably reached out to me 10 days after the murders. Uh, and first, I got a, a letter from him on a Friday that said uh, he needed to get out of this box and, um, you know, he wanted to go out back and help the world. And it was short. It was like two or three lines written in pencil. Very cryptic, though. Tons of spelling errors. I mean, in fact, some words that just didn't even make sense. And and, and later on, his, his girlfriend would tell me, tell me that he was dyslexic and mother would say that he had a reading problem, but uh, nonetheless. So then he called the next day. We spoke for about 10 minutes. He had a, the phone records would only let him make 15-minute calls, and his, and his 
car just ran out and he called and he said that I, uh, you know, we talked a little bit and introduced myself and uh, we talked a little bit, very, very briefly about his time in Iraq and then set up a return call. He said, you know, I'll call you on Monday and we can talk as long as you want. And I said, okay, I'll put money on your card. And I didn't hear from him again. So, uh, so I had these two very brief exchanges at the outset, which were uh, helpful in going to the family that he had sort of wanted to reach out, but th- that was the extent. They weren't overly revealing. Would you say your beat at the New Yorker is the U.S. military? Uh, no, in fact, that was that was part of my reluctance to take the story on. Is that uh, I said I don't I don't want to be the SEAL guy. I don't oh, want to be the, I don't want to be the military guy. I mean, the first story that I pitched to the magazine or that that I that the magazine commissioned was a, a piece that I wrote about a court martial. Yeah. Um, and that I thought was just it, it delved into this very sticky legal question that more or less allows the military or allowed the military to try one man three times for murder for a single crime. Um, And while I was uh, reporting that, I had lunch with someone, uh, an old contact, who who, um, seemed like he could be very helpful in in guiding me on the bin Laden story, so I picked that one up. Um, I think that the SEAL story, I think the reason why everyone there thought it was a good idea was because I had done the bin Laden story, and and so, well, you've got SEAL contacts, and, uh, um, you know, you come from a Marine family, so, you know, you can kind of leverage both of those two things to get both sides to talk, but I, uh, no, I I, I don't, I'm I'm not interested in working the U.S. military beat. All right, so... (laughs) Uh, whether you are or not of the U.S. military beat <laughs> remains debatable. Um, but you've written several stories about that have had a um, had to deal with a lot of people who who are active or, or former military servicemen. Um, and I imagine that coming from a magazine like the New Yorker, um, a great asset if you're trying to profile a novelist. Uh, possibly not so much when you're dealing with people in the Navy. Um, what what are the sort of reactions you get when when you approach people? Well, for particularly for this most recent story, just nothing. I mean, the New Yorker just doesn't register as it doesn't register as there's no cachet, um, and in fact, it kind of just suggests sort of East Coast elitism. And and um, I mean, the lawyers for Eddie, uh, one of the lawyers in particular, I mean, I would I would call and leave fifteen twenty messages at the front desk, emails at home, FedEx letters to the house. Um, and not get a response back, and and you know, would, and then when I finally would hear from him, he'd be like, "Well, I've been really busy." And I think, you know, in New York, you can, or in D.C., you can get very, very, very busy people to return a call just by mentioning you're with the New Yorker. It just didn't. It, it meant very little, and so that was, you know, it was good. It was fun. It sort of made it actually extra challenging, um, and and in turn, when I eventually did get to. Uh, the people that animate the story, the people that Chris Kyle did mentor and to the Routh family. I mean, there was just, there was no varnish of, of PR strategizing or anything. I mean, these were just, you know, very straightforward people, very straightforward conversations. And in that sense, I think it was very, you know, it was very rewarding as a reporting experience. How did you represent your intentions with the story to them? I think all, all along it was that uh, I knew that there were, additional sides to both Chris Kyle and to Eddie Ray Routh. And, 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 you know, I had gotten an inkling from the beginning um, that, that Eddie had had a number of, of run-ins or sort of had gone in and out of the VA system. And so that was my appeal uh, to both the sister and, and the mother and father was that I wanted to hear more about this. And with Chris Kyle's side, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, the people, you would think that the people closest to him would be the most willing to talk. But... His legacy right now is is solid. His legacy is is this this infallible war hero. And he's so, still on the bestseller list. He's right? still on the bestseller list. His newest book came out yesterday and uh, on Tuesday morning. And on tu- or on Tuesday on Tuesday morning it was number ninety two on Amazon. And by five when I checked again it was nineteen. I'm sure it's you know top ten ish now. So and and he's just you know eight thousand people showed up to his memorial service in Cowboy Stadium. Apparently it was the longest funeral procession in the history of Texas. Um, so I think the people closest to him thought that talking to, again, talking to a magazine like the New Yorker was going to do nothing to help burnish his, his, his reputation and legacy. So rather just stay away. So, um, but eventually I think that I made it clear that what I wanted to do was just that, that Chris Kyle as the, the, again, the infallible war hero, um, 
couldn't have been the whole story. And kind of, I wanted to capture the, 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 the dips of him coming home and, and the, the difficulties he had in adjusting. Mm. How, um, how did you learn the level of persistence to which you're able to send, say, 20 uh, FedEx packages to someone? I mean, is that, is that something that you've always had or something you developed as a writer? Uh, I, think, I think developed. And I think that something certainly at the New Yorker as well. Um, and uh, the, knowing that the expectation from editors is that you're not going to... You, you haven't quit until you've exhausted every option and the story is out and in print. Yeah. And so I think that with that sort of pinging around in the back of my head and, and having not been at the magazine very long, um, I just figured that I would kind of knock on every possible door. And let's, let's talk a little bit about how you got to a place where you are. It seems like the first stuff you started writing was while you were in Pakistan and around 2004. Yeah. What, what, what was your course that brought you to living in Pakistan? Yeah. So I, uh, I spent the summer of '04 actually uh, in Tehran, uh, studying Persian at uh, Tehran University. I had started a grad program at American University, and a professor of ours said that you know if anyone wants to study Farsi this summer, she could probably make arrangements to get people into the country. That offer is not still valid. That offer is not still valid, as I would actually, <laughs> as I would learn a couple of years later. Um, so I uh, so I went for the summer and, and lived in the dormitories with the student. I mean, it was just a, an incredible, incredible summer. And uh, wrote a few pieces, um, travel piece, uh, uh, an op-ed or two, um, and then a, a feature-ish piece about the student movement. And uh, took those pieces and, and leveraged them and got a small travel grant to go and spend two months in uh, Central Asia and Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. I was just kind of looking for, I mean, Iran is not obscure, but looking for underreported places and uh, just, you know, Robert Kaplan in a conversation very early on in 2004, 2005, and I had asked him what his approach was. And it was, he said something about to find obscure places and tell people why they shouldn't be obscure. What, what were you getting a graduate degree in? That uh, International affairs. International affairs. And, and what, what sort of led to, to that interest for you? Uh, putzing around and trying to become a philosopher. So I, I, I got, a, I got a graduate, my undergrad was in philosophy and I, uh, Started a grad program at Loyola University in Chicago um, and spent a semester at Loyola um, and just decided that this wasn't this wasn't the financial and life investment that I wanted to make to, to become a, you know, to spend five or six years paying to become a philosopher. So you said that you came from a military family. Yeah. Were you moving around a lot or? We did. Yeah. I mean, well, we, we not internationally. We uh, sort of bounced between. I was born in Arizona. My dad is an F-18 pilot. Um, and so we, there were a couple of air bases, uh, but I, I grew up mostly in Beaufort, South Carolina, um, but kind of bounced between there and Northern Virginia and Arizona as I was growing up and then lived for the past, uh, 10 or so, maybe even longer, 15 years, more or less in Northern Virginia and in DC, which is default home by this point. Did you, um, did you consider joining the military yourself? Uh, I, I, I thought about it, I think, I mean, and particularly after the I came back from Iran, and when I was in grad school, I kind of thought about what approach to looking at these issues and kind of looking at world affairs, and you know, what approach did I want to take? That with a, you know, with a nine millimeter or with a with a pen. I mean, not to oversimplify things. And, yeah. and I, um, when I came back from Iran, I had a really interesting conversation with a um, former Delta Force operator, and I told him what I was up to in Iran, and and he said to me over beers one night that you know, he said I I in recent years have also done similar things, you know, going into mosques where you're not supposed to be and kind of meeting, you know, going place, essentially being in places where you're, you don't think that you're supposed to be. He yeah. said, but it took me a long time, you know, like I had to go through boot camp and do a bunch of crap. And so if you're already doing that now and you want to be doing that, then just skip the whole thing. Just like, you don't, you don't need to go into the military to do that. And I think that, that urge to, to be somewhere where you're not supposed to be is, is a kind of a universal human urge once you had sort of crossed that threshold and you had gone to Tehran and you had gone to Central Asia, how did you start to translate those experiences into journalism? Yeah. So, so in each time, I mean, each time was kind of, I had, I had a mentor of sorts. I mean, uh, Douglas McRae, who's the, the, the brains behind pop-up out in San Francisco, um, was working at foreign policy at the time. And, uh, you know, gosh, I knew somebody who worked at like a real magazine. And so I would just, 
I mean, I would send Doug pitches and ideas and, and he would kind of say like, this is, this sounds like a research project, not as much like a magazine <laughs> idea, yeah. but here are some things. And yeah. so, uh, I, I just started trying to write for anywhere that would take me and kind of trying to leverage each piece on, upon the other. So, um, Fast forward a few years, I, I applied for this fellowship to go spend two years in Iran uh, yeah. studying, uh, you know, I wanted to look at identity politics in Iran. And a week after I got the fellowship was when Ahmadinejad was elected. Um, and suddenly all of my reformist contacts who had been so helpful in getting me into, you know, meeting Grand Ayatollahs and Qom, et cetera, were now being branded as infidels and kind of, you know, we're not in a good spot. Um, they were like, maybe I could come stay with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, so eventually after four or five months, the Iranian intersection, who were very helpful, the individuals there were very helpful to me getting in summer of 04, just said, you're never going to get a visa. You and your wife are not going to get a two-year visa to go, like, bounce around. You were trying to go with your wife? Yeah. So wow. That's yeah. bold. Yeah, so I just, right after I got the fellowship, when we thought we were going to do this, I proposed. I said, you know, we've been together for a long time, but they're going to they're gonna want to see a marriage certificate to go yeah. into hotels together, so let's uh, make this official. I like You made, like, going to Iran for two years at marriage, like a package deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I, uh, when I asked her dad... Uh, what to, if I could marry her, we were out fishing. He lives in Long Beach Island, and we were out fishing. Uh, and his response was, okay, that's fine if you marry her. He said, but where the hell are you taking her? <laughs> <laughs> and we then proceeded to catch a shark like 10 minutes later. And, uh, and he said, yeah, you can get the hook out of that one's mouth. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, uh, so, yeah, so essentially I then applied for this fellowship, got into Iran, and then asked if I could go to Pakistan instead, and had some clips from the Iranian trip, and had probably published a half a dozen stories uh, when I was in Central Asia. And then this fellowship that sent me to Pakistan the institute with the Institute of Current World Affairs, their whole thing is, is to go somewhere for two years, learn the local language, and ideally, you know, don't get kicked out. Yeah. Don't abridge your, don't, don't sort of abridge your experience, and just write about what you see. So as a aspiring foreign correspondent, this is like the coolest thing ever. And so I uh, moved there on Valentine's Day of uh, 2006. My wife came about a month later, and uh, we were just there for this very fan, you know, pivotal period in, in Pakistani modern history and a great period for reporting because the Pakistani Taliban were beginning to, to coalesce and beginning to become something, but they were also still making a public appeal that they were just offering a sort of more righteous and virtuous style of government than the one being offered by this this American poodle, Pervez Musharraf, as they you know considered him. So, um, so they were interested in media and and they were interested in talking and they weren't as hidebound as they are now. They also they weren't as scary as they are now. Um, and so it was it was a great you know it was a great asset to be able to get out and and to talk to people all over the country. Now, you're the first person. You're not the first um, correspondent from Pakistan. I have. Uh, interviewed but you're the first who went as a married duo what what did what does your wife do well yeah so my wife um at the t- she was in, she was a nutritionist um so we went and she's also an artist so she spent the first couple of months um you know walking around taking pictures uh drawing being inspired just kind of hanging out and then started getting a little stir crazy so she decided to enroll at the uh, international islamic university in islamabad and she became the first non-Muslim American to ever go to school there. And she's enrolled in a master's program and would put on a hijab every morning and go to school. And the classes were sort of taught in a mixture. They were, the classes were ostensibly in English, but not everyone's English was that good. So the classes were in Urdu and English. And uh, so she learned international relations from, um, you know, this, this Islamist oh, that's awesome. women's education. So, I mean, the, she has this great story on the first day of one of the first day of one of the classes, they, uh, professor said you know what is absolute sovereignty or who has absolute sovereignty yeah and girls started raising their hand and it was allah <laughs> and the professor said no 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 that's that's not what i'm looking for he's, looking, he's obviously looking for the state here but it wasn't it wasn't coming and so he, he ricky said that you know he asked a half a dozen people um before he finally said no it's not allah it's actually the state i know where you're coming from but so that was you know that was the kind of worldview um i mean she Every one of our journalist friends tried to get her to to write a book. I was going to say they make an amazing like um, what they really teach at Islamabad <laughs> International Relations School. I mean, she so her Arabic teacher would not tutor my wife. My wife needed Arabic to graduate, 
and he refused to tutor her because it would be scandalous if he were caught after class hours privately one-on-one with a foreign student, female student. I mean, so my wife's Urdu teacher, who also spoke a little bit of Arabic, would call the Urdu teacher, I mean, would call the Arabic teacher, ask the Arabic teacher what the lesson was. He would then tell my wife's Urdu teacher, who would then teach my wife. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And, and there aren't female professors then, I take it, at the university. There were, there were some, but in this particular instance, it was male. So she was doing that. She was also, uh, with her nutrition background, she was, she was a head nutritionist and, and at the uh, Serena Hotel, which is this lovely five-star hotel in Islamabad. We had no money, but she swapped her services for uh, gym memberships for, my, for the, both of us. Um, that also gave her some great contacts because there were a number of, of obese Pakistani men who wanted nothing more than to be sort of told what they should eat by some blonde Jersey girl. This seems like another book. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the other book. So then in the end, and this, and this is why she was so bitter when we were deported, is that she, as a result of all these contacts, um, had started hosting a reality TV show and had just done a pilot for a reality TV show in Urdu in which she was making over Pakistani women. And so when we were... When the cops came um, in early January of 2008, you know, I hadn't been home in two years. Part of the stipulation of the fellowship was that I not go home. And uh, that's so they don't have to get you another visa? Or? Well, it's just they just don't want, they want you to stay immersed. They don't want you meeting with your CIA contacts. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what led to your deportation? Uh, so I, I wrote this piece in the Times Magazine that came out uh, in the f- first week of January of 2008. Uh, and it was a it was a story about the new generation of Taliban that were emerging that were were no longer beholden to the authority structures that that fostered the first generation. The authority structures being the tribal tribal authorities, uh, the intelligence agencies, and so on. Um, the story is called um, "The Education of a Holy Warrior," I believe. Uh, Next gen Taliban. Was Next this gen one. Taliban. Yeah. Okay, that's a different one. Yeah. Actually, okay. Um, and so. Uh, and it started out as a profile of this one Islamist pro-Taliban leader who had been called, you know, the, the father of the Afghan Taliban, who was now being threatened and rocket attacked by the Pakistani Taliban. So it was this sort of there was this rupture. And in the process of reporting that, I spent some time in the Swat Valley where the Pakistani Taliban had taken over. And, and I, in October of 07, witnessed the Pakistani Taliban lashing criminals. And it was just, I mean, it, you talk about being someplace where you know you're not supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, they knew that I was an American journalist, but I spoke enough Urdu to be able to not give myself away immediately. I was dyeing my hair brown. Um, I had a little bit of a beard. I was wearing a shower kameez. I just sort of, sort of like threw as many clothes. Yeah, off I was going to say, like I had, uh, we had uh, Matthew Akins on yeah. the podcast, and I think he's... Half Asian of, of some descent. He, he can pass much He's better. A, than I uh, yeah, uh, yeah. For those who are listening on the radio, um, you look like you could be like a like <laughs> like a Welsh rugby player, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, the, there's uh, even with dyed hair, I, I have trouble believing that um, you would you would pass as Pakistani. Well, the thing is, you know, part of part of the readjustment um, is that I had this. Uh, uh, I mean, I had, all Pakistani men wear wear sandals with a little bit of a heel. And of course, you know, when in Rome, so I had these awesome sandals that had a little bit of a heel. And that yeah. was one of the things when we got back to the States, my wife, we were unpacking our boxes. She said, you will not wear those here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so they, they got onto the fact that you were onto them a little bit. And, and I mean, do you know, like directly what, you know, who, who said, get rid of this guy? No. I mean, the, the, the situation was actually quite similar to what happened to Declan Walsh, the New York Times correspondent who was recently expelled, in that we were home one night and a bunch of cops showed up, plainclothes police officers and uniformed police officers, and they just handed over this this deportation order that said, I mean, it, it said that our visas had been canceled effective immediately. And, um, you know, I was stunned. It was two days after this Times magazine piece had come out. Uh, did did you know the piece came out on a Sunday? On Monday, did, did the Pakistani government wake up and say, "Let's kick the, you know kick this kid out"? Yeah. Had it already had the gears already been in motion? I don't know. Um, did, were they were they looking at the web version? The Times Magazine had a few days <laughs> of what was coming out, possibly. <laughs> um, and uh, so this was my wife's contacts. You know, so these these cops are all standing in the driveway, and I went running upstairs and I told my wife what was going on, and my wife was totally unperturbed. She said, "Oh, you know, call." Uh, Call our, our, our friend, who was one of her obese 
uh, nutrition clients. And I called this guy uh, when I went back, ran back downstairs, and I called this guy in front of the cops, and I said, you know, we have a bit of a problem right now. I've got police officers in my driveway who are who are ready to take us to the airport right yeah. now. And he said, don't worry about it. He said, I'm uh, I'm playing bridge right now with President Musharraf's national security advisor. He <laughs> said, you pass the phone to the senior most police officer, and I'll pass the phone to Tarek Aziz, the national security advisor. So we did this phone swap, and the look on this police officer's face will ever be in <laughs> my mind when I said, you know, Tar- Tarek Aziz is on the phone and wants to talk to you. And uh, a few sort of yes sirs later, the guy gave me back the phone and said, uh, okay, you guys are fine. We're sorry for bothering you tonight. The next morning, we called the con- we called my wife's um, nutrition client again, and you know, and he he said, we'll deal with this in the morning. Just just go to sleep and don't worry about it. So in the morning, we called him and he said, eh, this is. This is above. It's this is above everybody, and uh, you know they'll give you three days to leave, but you need to leave. So, and I mean, were you envisioning a life in Pakistan at that point? Were you planning to stay? We didn't know what we were. I mean, we were going to stay for a while because my wife had all these great opportunities lined up. Um, in fact, part of I mean, this is what really, really gets her is that she had just the the the, the hotel was just about to expand and was going to put in this huge spa, and they had just made her. She'd gone from being an unpaid nutrition counselor to being a fully paid uh, spa manager. And her first <laughs> I job... I had a spa in Islamabad. <laughs> well, there... I mean, this this hotel is pretty, is pretty magnificent. And they said to her, this summer, what would have been, what would have been the, spring in, in the spring of 2008, we want you to go around to various five-star hotels in Asia and just enjoy treatments for several days and figure out what's the best way to do it. So she was pissed at me. I mean, it, was, it seems like your wife really got like a better deal in Pakistan. You were watching the Taliban whip guys and she was on the, about to go on the spa tour. Yeah. Uh, and she, she was, she was not, she was not happy with me when I, when we brought her back to DC and she was like, well, what do I do now? Can you ever go back to Pakistan? So I, I went back. Um, there was a government change and uh, I went back in August of 08 seven months later for Smithsonian uh, to do this sort of culture story about Sufism um, and uh, with the idea that, that the Taliban have the guns, but the Sufis are the ones, the Sufis have the numbers, and if you want to understand mainstream Islam in Pakistan, that these, these Sufi festivals are really what you need to go and see. So uh, I went, and the, the, the magazine, the Smithsonian sent along a photographer, this great guy, Aaron Huey, who's just a wild man, and so that Aaron brought his wife along as well, and the three of us were in a taxi leaving Karachi to go attend this festival, and we started getting these very disturbing phone calls from people claiming to be people that didn't exist, newspaper reporters that didn't exist, all of them asking to meet me at various places in Karachi. And I was like, you know, I've, I've sort of tried to extract lessons and read enough about the Daniel Pearl case to know yeah. kind of what you know, what happened in the days leading up and the hours leading up. And this is very similar. Um, so we, they were asking you to meet at so, saying they were Pakistani journalists. So this one guy called and said he was from, I forget what newspaper, but that he wanted to interview me and he heard that I was in town. And so we proceeded to call his editor and yeah. his editor said, there's no reporter by that name at this newspaper. Did you stay in the country after? Well, we, we kept, we kept driving, uh, towards this Sufi, towards this festival. And then, uh, shortly after that friends started calling and they were watching local television and it was being reported that Nicholas Shamble, um, editor of Smithsonian magazine has been kidnapped. And it was like, all right, I get the hint, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm flattered that you would call me the editor of Smithsonian magazine. Yeah. And, and, well, my last name is not Shamble, it's close enough, and I, I you know, I, I, I get it. So over the course of the next couple of hours, the, the, the name and the uh, ID became more accurate, and before we knew it, it was Nicholas Schmidl, yeah. a writer for Smithsonian, has been kidnapped. Um, State Department called my wife. She called me in a frenzy and said, you know, I just got this call from the State Department. Where are you, and are you okay? And I said, I am, but, like, I'm trying to get to this festival do what I need to do, and then get to the airport immediately. You stayed at the festival, even knowing that you were, had already been kidnapped under a different name. So this is, I mean, it was, this, this is Pakistan. I mean, this was the sort of the smallness of Pakistan was that the night before, the, the, two days before President Musharraf had stepped down and Asif Zardari suddenly became the most powerful person in the country. And on that night, um, 
I was uh, I, I sat with Zardari for about 45 minutes, and so when this all started happening, we called Zardari's office and we said, you know, remember me, the guy who was reporting or <laughs> profiling you last night? Yeah. Um, things have just gone belly up, and you know, like we're, we just need to do this for we need to go to this festival for a little bit and then get to the airport. So he called the chief minister of the province, and they set up a little bit of a secure. You know, they essentially escorted us to this festival. Right. And then uh, escorted us back to Karachi, and when we got back to Karachi, it was just things just became. We'd been driving all night. It was it was a to describe this night. You would think that I'm making some part of it. We literally were driving through the middle of Sindh, which is sort of bandit country, and we cracked an axle. And then so we could we, we had to drive the rest of the way at like 20 miles an hour. We didn't get to a hotel. We rolled into Karachi at like six in the morning, and the Karachi police, who a day earlier had said they wanted to help us, and then when we got back into town, they would take care of us. Now said that they didn't want anything to do with us. And so it just felt like someone had gotten to them and sort of told them, like, don't help these kids. And so yeah. eventually I called the embassy, the U.S. embassy, and had what was more or less the first time that I'd ever asked the embassy for help. And uh, they told us that they knew that the intelligence agencies were following us, uh, but they, didn't, they couldn't tell whether the intelligence agencies were trying to protect us from a threat or whether they were the threat. Yeah, I was going to say, like, isn't it probably the intelligence agency? Like, who else knew that you were coming to the country so that they could get Shamble right. on there in the first place? So. <laughs> right. The whole, I mean, the whole thing was, 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 it got fairly terrifying. Um, yeah. And so they, they said, the, the embassy said, get it, get to a hotel, get to the, this five star hotel, the uh, Pearl Continental, and get a room and just stay there. Get in the spa. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got into a hotel. We, uh, and uh, someone from the embassy showed up a little bit later um, and put us put me in a bulletproof car and took me to the airport. And my, you know, if you get taken, if you're trying to report in a country that's not quite a war zone and you have to be taken by the U.S. embassy in a bulletproof car, that's when you sort of that's that's when my reporting there is done. In terms of developing those sort of reportorial instincts, how do you know when you're somewhere that's too dangerous? I mean, where were you drawing the lines? But- yeah, well, I mean, I think that the, the, in the end. If I needed to, uh, if I needed to sort of be traveling around in a bulletproof car, I mean, I was it was it was it was terrifying. And and the uh, the photographer Aaron Huey and I have talked about it since then. And I think that you know he jokes that he sort of he aged years over the course of those two days. Um, and uh, I think that now, particularly, I mean, this, the way that I approach stories is much different. It's much less. It's much more about trying to really minimize and calculate risk. I think that initially you want to throw yourself in places that no one else is, you know, to be in the middle of a Pakistani, I mean, what was effectively a training camp, um, you know, that's, that, that's a way to grab an editor's attention. And I feel like now, um, I'll let other people sort of, you know, (laughs) do that, do that. And, and, uh, look for, I'd rather now find stories of people that are doing crazy stuff than be the one that necessarily needs to go about trying to do it. Well, it was interesting reading through your stories. This is kind of a good transition to some of the stuff you did more modern. Many of your early stories read more like travelogue and have like a lot of I in it and and are basically you putting yourself in a situation you don't really know what's going to happen and something happens or you observe things. And um, your reporting has shifted to a far more narrative mode where you've sort of stepped out of the picture and... uh, you're going after stories. What? When did you? When do you make that shift? Um, probably, uh, I I went to do a story, which was potentially the diciest story that I've done since I left Pakistan. But it was also, I think, a transition story. I went to uh, for the Times Magazine sent me to Nigeria to do a story about the kidnapping for ransom industry, um, and uh, and I spent some time in the Niger Delta with with a couple of kidnappers. Um, and it was kind of a profile of a kidnapper and, you know, just listening to this guy talk about taking, you know, foreign contractors off the streets and, you know, holding them at gunpoint, taking them into the creeks and and then the ransom negotiations and all that. And I think that, so there was an element of like, look, I'm here hanging out with the Nigerian, with the, with the, with the kidnappers, but also these are incredible stories and sort of, you know, met this, this Scottish guy who, who, um, walked me through his whole kidnapping ordeal. And and I think that th- at that point was kind of the transition that uh, I don't need to be, again, like I don't yeah. need to be the one that's getting kidnapped <laughs> to There's, make it a good story. So not that long after that, you became a, a staff writer for The New Yorker. So Your staff. Yeah. 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 And you did this story on the Bin Laden raid, yeah. which is probably the most well-known or the most talked about work that you've done. What... 
How did you get that story, for starters? Because sure. you, you weren't the established U.S. military beat guy at that point. No, so no, no. What, uh, what led to you picking up that story? Yeah, so I, I um, you know, you'd asked earlier about hanging out with intelligence folks in Pakistan. Um, and I, I did not there. But when I came back, um, I did a bunch of think tank panels about Pakistani Taliban. And I did a thing at the Council on Foreign Relations one morning. And it was... Uh, Bob Grenier, who the former CIA station chief in Pakistan and, and head of the counterterrorism center, and, and I were on this panel together. And, you know, Grenier had been out of Pakistan for a while, but we started talking. So he was, he was you know, far rustier than I, and, and I, I'm, sure, I'm sure his knowledge in Pakistani Taliban leaders is far deeper than mine in some regards. But nonetheless, yeah. and this one, we were talking about these one, one or two individuals, and uh, I just kind of explained to him, you know, he said that they were they were brothers and I then said no actually they're related by like this cousin this cousin this cousin and and, and it was one of the it, and it felt really good for the second and, yeah. and afterwards when when the thing broke up someone approached me and said uh you know that was that was pretty impressive you know you kind of showed up the uh, former CIA station chief in terms of your 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 Pakistani Taliban knowledge and uh so I stayed in touch with this guy now um, you've crossed Pakistani intelligence and U.S. <laughs> <laughs> no Grenier and I Grenier, you know Bob and I stayed in touch for sure and and um he, uh, in fact, kind of was has, has helped me on a number of other stories and kind of was working in the private security realm. Now, I know that um, uh, Patrick Radden Keefe actually worked for one of these think one of these sort of governmental think tank like agencies for a year or two. Like well, he, he was, was recruited. They were like, "You're so good at this. Like, why don't you actually do this?" <laughs> yeah, he was at the Department of Defense in the uh, in their transnational threats uh, office, I think, for a while. It's a good name for a band. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, have you? Has anyone ever asked you to do something like that? No, no, they haven't. You can't talk about it. No, <laughs> I haven't. Uh, I'm I'm trying to think whether there's been any. <sighs> No, I mean, I've uh, people have asked to sort of come and talk at events um, where those kinds of where, you know, yep. there's this there's this hybrid of, of private industry and intelligence community. And I've just steered clear um, and kind of realized that it's, you know, there's 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 always the there's always the trade off of exposure by hanging around with these people yeah. versus the association that later on somehow or another diminishes your perspective of your uh, credibility or independence and so i've just kind of taken taken the uh the stance of, of of steering clear evan speaks at a lot of corporate conferences he did a story about how to disappear wired, and <laughs> yeah that's, that's apparently something lots of business men are interested in <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. so you showed up the cia state uh former station chief right. and um this was this was what around what year uh, this was uh Early 2008. 2008. Um, and, and met this guy who I stayed in cl- contact with and uh, would periodically meet for lunch. I mean, he was, he was uh, and, and remains a friend. I mean, he's much more a friend than a source. And we would just kind of get together and, and, and shoot the breeze. And uh, in May of 2011, um, we met for lunch. And uh, it was clear that, that he may be able to point me in the right direction on the story in a way that, that and offer some granularity. How much after the actual events? Uh, three weeks. Three weeks. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so so we met. Did you tell him that you were you thinking about doing the story? He was just like, "Hey, I was I was just having lunch with the the SEAL team. You should, you should uh, we should all go bowling." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So when you and this is the first time that I felt like I had something like a scoop, and and so then the question that I you know, reached out to all these people who I respected and kind of had seen as mentors, the Steve Calls of this world, yeah. you know, kind of like, what do I do with this scoop? Like, how do I go about trying to verify and, and add to it? And yeah. um, it, it's, you know, the White House was was the last stop. Um, but along the way, um, when you when I would bring this story, when I would bring the story to various government agencies and tell them what I knew, they then were willing to co- corroborate and also, there's there's this kind of you know you're also pricking their pride a little bit. Like they they think they have the whole story, and suddenly you come to them and you're and they're like, oh, so you do so you know about X, Y, and Z. Well, like I bet you don't know about A, B, and C. And I'm like, no, I don't. But now I'll write that down. And when you're going off to these people who obviously are not going to be quoted in the story, right. what what kind of a protection? I mean, is there a sort of a New Yorker policy about deep military sourcing? What how do you do that for the first time? I guess I'm asking. Well, like I said, I mean, it was it helped to 
it helped to ask someone like Steve Call, who was who was has both the t- military, New Yorker, all, all the background to kind of get him to get some thoughts. Um, but you know, there wasn't a lot of there. There, I mean, I remember when I filed the piece, um, David Remnick called later, you know, a few hours later, and said. Okay, so the rules of the road, the way we do things in the magazine is that we're going to really fact check this thing. So I hope you guys are ready to get on the phone. And I said, well, the good news is that everybody is and everyone's, and everyone's prepared. But I think that at, at, when you go to them with so much, uh, when you go to people from whether it's the CIA or SOCOM or JSOC with the, the core of a story, and all really you need to do you know, is you're telling them, they're either saying yes or they're nodding with a smile or they're saying, I can't really comment on this. And I'm saying, okay, well, just tell me when I go astray. Yeah. And and people would. And then people would say, actually, you know, there were X number of helicopters. Or they, did you know that they, you know, there was one episode where they said, I bet you didn't know that they, um, the helicopters had to stop to refuel on the way home. And I said, no, I didn't. And then, so, you know, I would go back to the original source and say, oh, yeah, you know, it wasn't like, then he would be able to describe more on that. So it was just a circular reporting where with each series of conversations whether they were from from the pentagon or from like i said the agency the white house my original source i could just keep coming back and and my original source would then corroborate and give me a little bit more you know people their memories are jogged even though this is a relatively fresh incident it takes half a dozen conversations at least to feel like you can flesh out um you know begin to flesh out a story like this is are the people who are who are telling you this stuff for the story aware of who else is telling you stuff for the story? I mean, how much are you shielding the different players from each other? Very much so. Yeah. So you might like two people who work together potentially could be both talking to you and unaware that they are both talking to you. Yeah. Did you catch anyone bullshitting you? Um there was a question about the discrepancy there was there were there were two issues, one of which is that whether it was a capture or kill mission. That, that was, damn, kill my next question. Okay, <laughs> and, go ahead. And, and uh, the White House was adamant that it was a capture or kill mission. Yeah. And, you know, I just kept going back to my source, and he just kept saying, look, they can call it what they want, but there was no way we were taking them out alive. Because I, I believe you were the first person who reported sort of definitively in a fact-check way that uh, it was a kill mission. Yeah. And, and I noticed that when I was, I didn't notice that when I read it originally when I was reading your piece. I was like, Huh, that's weird because it's still being widely reported that the it was a cap it was a capture mission that ended up in a kill. Yeah. Um, so something like that. The fact that the White House is saying no is not a problem for a fact checker. Well, I think that it it, it I mean it, we should next time we should bring in the team and that'll be. <laughs> you know, but uh, that would be awesome. Actually, I uh, I want to have uh, I want to have a New Yorker fact checker in here. I think that'd be fascinating because we th- this is not an uncommon issue with yeah. the stories like this it's like wait how did how did this get assembled and we've never had a fact checker on the show so yeah next time. no i mean i think that it's it is amazing to see them be there. i mean they they in this in this most recent story were were finding people and pulling people out of the woodwork that i just hadn't been able to get i mean it's 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 one thing to say can i interview you it's another thing to say the story's going to print tomorrow and i know you haven't wanted to speak to the writer for the past four months but your name is associated with the following things and will you yeah. c- confirm this? So, so, you know, they do work their magic in that sense. But in this, in, in, in the question of the capture or kill, in the capture or kill question, you also wonder why when someone, when someone who I trust as a friend is telling me so adamantly that, that there was no capture option. And then there are folks at the White House who are telling me it was a capture or kill mission. You have to ask yourself why they would want what would be their reasoning for that? Um, and I think that ultimately we felt like that was spin and the other one was was the real deal. So we went with that. Well, I mean, it doesn't really make sense particularly that it was a that there was any intention to capture because it seems like they're in a pretty good place to have captured him if that was actually the intention of the mission. Yeah, and, and it depending on depending on which version of the actual sort of bullet, the kill bullet you take, um, I mean, there are versions that, you know, my, my version and the way that we reported it is that, you know, there was, there were, there was a bullet to the head and a bullet to the chest. And then Mark Owen, who was the seal on the team said that, you know, essentially bin Laden had been shot once and he came in and pumped him with a couple more shots. And then another guy who claims that he was also the shooter offered a slightly different account. So that's in light of those two accounts, I thought, all right, well, so if we've got two guys who are both saying they're the shooter, yeah. then my initial thought after the piece, which is that as these seals start coming out 
and offering first-hand accounts will get even more clarity and detail and granularity about the story. As each of them have come out and their reports have actually contradicted one another, I think, right. all right, you know, I'm, I'm pretty darn confident with what we've got. So, you know, they're 23 guys in a dark house that they've never been in there before and are about to kill Osama bin Laden. You know, it's not it's not surprising that their accounts would, would that everyone would not have the exact same memory of that night. Yeah. Do you, um, in seeing the events now sort of uh, become a part of pop culture, both in movies like uh, Zero Dark Thirty, um, I watched, there's a documentary on HBO right now called Manhunt, which yeah. is more about the sort of hunt for Bin Laden than the actual raid. But right. um, what's that like for you as someone who is sort of, you know, What's it like for someone whose research has sort of uh, contributed to the historical record of these events, seeing it variously fictionalized and presented in a nonfiction context by with different sourcing? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's... I, I don't feel much ownership of it. I think that I've... Um, I think I was really ready after the story and the sort of ensuing <laughs> brouhaha after the story, yeah. I was really ready to kind of jump into another, to jump back into this court martial story and kind of get back to work and not have this single piece of reporting kind of define, you know, my contribution. Have you been consulted for any people who are make, who are doing Prime? Are you like a Bin Laden expert at this point? Or? Um, you know, there was a lot of talk initially about consulting on movies. And yeah. in fact, um, on, on zero of them was I actually formally consulted. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much for coming in um, on very short notice. Uh, yeah, it's while been fun. Yeah, it's been great, and uh, I look forward to uh, these stories that, that will keep coming out. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, Nicholas Schmidl, um, you can check out, uh, I think, maybe it's two New Yorkers ago in the crosshairs. Yeah. You can find all this online, um, and most of these other stories are on your website, which we will link to in the show notes. And that was the long form podcast. Uh, thanks very much to our super editor, Lauren Kirchner, my co-host, Max Linsky, Evan Ratliff, our intern, Chelsea Edgar, and everybody around the office who put up with us constructing this awesome podcast studio. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.